Robert Tiako Lange is a PhD student working at the Technical University of Berlin. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you, Robin, for having me. So how do you like to describe uh, your focus area? So that's actually um, not always an easy question to answer. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much interested in, in many subfields of reinforcement learning, but lately I've been mainly focused on uh, meta-learning and uh, connections to um, evolution and uh, evolutionary strategies. Great. So that's reflected in the papers that were uh, your papers that we're going to talk about today, starting with uh, learning not to learn nature versus nurture in silico. Um, was a paper um, written by me and my supervisor, Henning Sprekeler. So what was the gist of, of this paper? Many people know meta-learning um, sort of under its pseudonym, uh, learning to learn, right? So the idea is essentially that you um, train an agent or a neural network on a distribution of tasks, and the neural network learns essentially either a learning algorithm or um, some form of initialization or some form of uh, features that are sort of uh, shared across these tasks and can be utilized across them. Back when we started working on the paper, we were sort of interested in um, the biological um, analog and the question of nature versus nurture. So um, how much you should adapt and how much you should essentially already hard code from the get go. And we felt like um, that the meta-learning community back then was mostly interested in the adaptation part, right? So you want to be capable of adapting fast to a new task, given a little amount of data. But there might be some situations where adaptation is actually not the optimal strategy. And instead, meta-learning should actually hard-code some form of heuristic choice. So for example, um, if you have an agent and that agent has a fixed amount of lifetime, then the agent might simply not be able to solve a task um, if it was to learn, um, given its lifetime, because there is not enough and uh, not enough information can be integrated. And in the paper, we essentially wanted to test whether or not modern tools from meta-learning are actually capable of not only learning to learn, but also um, learning not to learn and um, sort of enforce a heuristic behavior. And um, in the paper, um, we, we sort of have um, a little bit of theory for a simple bandit task. And we're actually able to show that indeed memory-based meta-learning, so the type of meta-learning where you train a recurrent neural network to solve a specific task, um, is actually capable of also not learning um, or learning not to learn. So for the meta-RL uh, part, I see you use um, RL squared. And mm -hmm. and I um, and then looking at the reference, it seems like there's two uh, there's two there's another paper that uses that phrase. I guess one is uh, from Duan and the OpenAI folks in 2016 um, was the one I was thinking of. But then but you actually reference Wang and the and the DeepMind uh, team from 2016. And so you mentioned there was some uh, interesting overlap there. Do you want to fill us in on that? Um, yeah, so basically, um, the paper by Duan et al. and by Wang et al., they sort of um, came into being simultaneously. Like, both of the authors um, discovered, essentially, that if you train a recurrent neural network on a set of tasks, and um, the network receives as an input um, the reward from the previous time step, then the recurrent dynamics of this RNN are going to implement a type of learning algorithm type of information integration essentially and um, both of these papers came up with that um, uh, simultaneously and um, had different results but um, actually almost 
uh, identical algorithmic implementations. And in our paper, we uh, we use Aural Squared or this setting of uh, memory-based meta-learning um, to essentially test our hypothesis whether or not you can also meta-learn not to learn. Yeah, and um, it's actually, so the question of whether or not you can uh, meta-learn heuristic behaviors um, is actually also really interesting for um, many robotic settings in which you might not have enough time to essentially learn some form of behavior ad hoc and you want to have a good default to which you can fall back and have a system that sort of identifies when it should learn and when not. Can you help us understand a little more about what these hard-coded behaviors are like? Um, is this open loop uh, behavior? Is it sensing and responding still? In animal um, behavior essentially, um, some really intriguing examples are um, for example, giraffes, right? So a giraffe that is born um, is basically able to walk after um, a single minute, right? So there is some form of hard coding in terms of motor primitives going on that allows the animal to really quickly walk without having a lot of reward signal um, to guide its behavior or its learning. Um, another example of instinctive or um, heuristic behaviors are fish and david ha likes to um, use this example uh, oftentimes in his talks as well where fish have a morphology that already hard codes certain swimming behaviors so uh, in in sort of a, a very simple illustration um, one can see um, a bunch of fish and uh, these fish move uh, downstream um, but these fish are actually dead and the whole takeaway is essentially that the, the body of the fish is already sort of prone to execute a certain behavior. And in the context of um, training neural network agents, um, we, we sort of have two um, example cases. One is simply like a classic bandit task in which there are two arms and one arm is always sort of deterministic, going to give you a reward of zero. And we have another arm and uh, that arm's characteristics are sampled from some form of task distribution. And depending on the shape of that task distribution, it might be beneficial to explore that non-deterministic arm and to figure out whether or not its average reward is above zero. And if that's the case, then you should essentially continue exploiting that arm. But if that's not the case, you should take the deterministic arm and get always a reward of zero, right? And in this case, the um, meta-learning essentially um, has to discriminate between task distributions in which it's sort of um, feasible or on average bene uh, beneficial to, to learn which arm is better and in which settings it isn't. And when it figures out that it isn't beneficial to explore, then the recurrent dynamics of the RNN are going to implement essentially um, something very stale that just tells the agent always pick the deterministic arm. And then we have a second example, and in that second example, we have an agent that has to explore some 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 type of visual navigation task, like a maze um, or a grid world. And in that grid world, there are, for example, rewards of different magnitudes. And uh, you can think of those rewards um, as sort of being um, uh, different types of food or nutrition, and they um, vary their location with different amounts of um, probability. So um, one reward location might always be fixed and the same, while others might vary. And um, in this setting, the agent sort of has to meta-learn whether or not there is enough time to actually do the exploration to pick up a 
more uncertain but higher reward or to deterministically always go to to a safe location and what we find there is that essentially um, agents which are trained using uh, memory-based meta-learning are um, somewhat overfitting their lifetime horizon so if an agent has only um, seen lives essentially in its meta-training um, setup that uh, consists of lifetime five then it's uh, not going to be able to meta-learn a more expressive exploration strategy for example and in these cases even if the agent has more lifetime it's always going to choose the suboptimal um, deterministic um, behavior so this lifetime overfitting in meta-learning is also something that's in my opinion um, somewhat underexplored in, in the literature in the sense that you ideally would like to meta-learn a time universal agent that's capable of adjusting its own learning algorithm based on the amount of time that it has. It might not always be the optimal strategy to explore endlessly or to be heuristic from the get-go, but um, sort of we as humans are very much capable of separating between uh, what strategy we should pick depending on the time budget that we have for a certain task. So it sounds like we might not expect uh, fruit flies to develop language and culture. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. So uh, depend. I assume the lifetime of a fruit fly is fairly limited to to make use of language, right? Um, yeah. So uh, exactly um, the the way how ecology or the environment um, sort of shapes what is beneficial to MetaLearn is something that's sort of explored in in this paper. So were any of the results surprising to you, or were you kind of confirming what you already? Uh suspected was the case one um, result that was surprising to me was um, basically you can imagine settings where there's just enough time to um, figure out the solution to a task and given a little bit less time you won't be able to do it and in these settings what we find is that memory-based meta-learning which is ultimately based on gradients um, is very much uh, seat um, dependent so some seeds figure out that at that point you are supposed to, to meta-learn an adaptive strategy and others don't. So essentially, whenever you have a setting where it's really sensitive how much time you have, um, the optimization landscape becomes very um, erratic or hard to solve. And this is something that in my mind, um, uh, yeah, more meta-learning algorithms that should resemble more complex adaptation um, should essentially incorporate or uh, try to tackle. So besides uh, these hard-coded behaviors and, and, and learned behaviors, I guess you might say that animals uh, have another channel, which is learning from culture and from, from teach, teachers, like a teacher-student type thing. Do you think that that uh, learning with via like culture or by teachers is... Do you consider that like just a subcategory of of uh, of learning in the, in the in the in the sense that you you have in this paper, or do you think of it as a separate category? Like, if your agents had the ability to teach each other, do you think that that would would have changed things? That's a really interesting question. So, um, basically, our paper is just a starting point, right? So we use um, essentially first very simple settings in which we can do analytical. Uh, work in which we can figure out the base optimal behavior and then compare it to the meta-learned approximate Bayesian inference. 
Um, but going further, this is for sure something um, I'm interested in. And in fact, right now, a master student, Dorothea Müller, who I'm working with, is actually looking into these settings where there are sort of experts that um, guide or give feedback to the agent and the agent has to um, meta learn how to trust. This is very much along the lines of Natasha Jack's work. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable um, extension. Cool. Yeah, I guess I sometimes forget that that most of our knowledge and quote intelligence, well, not really purely intelligence, but that knowledge comes from culture and teaching and it's very little we discover on our own in our own lifetime. Yeah, there's so many artifacts, right? Just if you think about books, you know, there's there's no machine learning algorithm right now out there that could explore the world, pick up a book and capture all the knowledge that's written in a book. So I think, yeah thinking along the lines of what are um, sophisticated artifacts that we could build into artificial systems, environments, and so on, um, is also something really um, interesting. Cool. Okay, let's move on to your next paper on lottery tickets and minimal task representations in deep reinforcement learning. This paper is um, a paper that originated from uh, another ma master student, Mark Fisher, who um, started working on lottery tickets in the context of reinforcement learning. And uh, back then, um, the, the lottery ticket hypothesis first sort of popped up and uh, was mainly demonstrated in the computer vision community. And maybe before I dive into um, the paper, um, I'm going to take a, a minute to sort of introduce the lottery ticket hypothesis more uh, conceptually. Great. Originally, people had all very, like many hypotheses um, about why overparameterization is important in, in training deep neural networks. And there were many observations which showed that if you take a small network um, and try to prune it from scratch, given the random initialization, that this fails. And people argued that overparameterization essentially helps with um, the optimization by allowing more um, dimensions to essentially circumvent local minima. And there have been many other sort of tales about um, like an information bottleneck kind of view on these things where you first have a network that needs to memorize the data uh, generating process and then afterwards essentially sort of distills it. Um, and in order to do this uh, memorization, um, you need a lot of network capacity. And then Jonathan Frankel came along and showed that this was actually um, not the case. And most of these sort of observations or hypotheses were actually um, not, not really adequate. And more specifically, what he did is he um, came up with a, a procedure for how to derive sparse neural networks, which are trainable from scratch to the same or similar performance levels as um, dense neural networks. So before what people usually did is they took um, a dense neural network and they pruned it um, after training a little bit and then retrained and then pruned a little bit and then retrained. And in the lottery ticket um, hypothesis paper, um, the procedure essentially um, goes um, a different route where you start to train a neural network until convergence and you keep the initialization of that neural network saved. And then at the end of training, you ask the network, hey, what are your um, highest magnitude weights? And you prune away the lowest magnitude weights like a percentage or fraction, and then reset the remaining weights back to um, the initial values that you had before you started training. 
and you iterate this, this process, each time shaving away a little bit more of your weights. And if you do so, so this procedure is called iterative magnitude pruning, um, you end up with a network or with many networks at different sparsity levels. And importantly, um, many of these networks at high degrees of sparsity um, remain trainable. So basically what this says is um, there are sparse neural networks which are trainable, but maybe right now we don't have the right efficient way for doing the uh, initialization to that sparsity level. And back then, um, a bunch of follow-up papers popped up trying to do this in, in different contexts, like in um, natural language, for example, or in object recognition and in, um, in reinforcement learning, there was also a first paper. But what most of these papers did is sort of only establish um, that this um, existence of sparse neural networks also um, is present in, in different other contexts. Like, for example, in um, natural language processing, um, you can obtain sparse transformer models, which can also train up to um, the performance of their uh, dense counterparts for a specific level of sparsity. But no one really looked at um, sort of what's actually happening um, on the underlying level. So um, what are sort of the representations that are shaped by this pruning process? And uh, we wanted to essentially explore um, these questions in, in our paper. In the paper, you say you use masks for the pruning. Can you uh, tell us what these uh, masks are? Yeah. So in general, um, the, the winning lottery ticket, so the sparse network that is capable of training to um, high performance, consists essentially of two parts. So it consists of um, the network that um, was initialized originally, and this is a dense network, and it consists of the pruning mask. So that's a, a binary mask that essentially masks out um, all the weights that were pruned away. And in our paper, we essentially come up with um, a set of baselines to try to disentangle the effect of the pruning mask and the weights that are preserved by that pruning mask. So you could imagine just keeping the pruning mask around and using um, a different initialization. But this would then sort of discard the effect of the weights that were sort of filtered out by the iterative magnitude pruning process. And um, what we wanted to do is see whether or not um, these uh, masks and weights contribute uh, differently to the ticket. And um, this was basically based on an observation that Mark, um, my master's student, had that um, oftentimes when you train multilayer perceptron um, policies, uh, the initial layer is pruned a lot more than the higher layers. And um, when you look at uh, what is pruned away, you find that essentially entire initial or uh, dimensions of your observation are pruned away. So that means um, all the weights that sort of um, originate from one input dimension are discarded, which in turn means that the agent does not um, perceive the dimension in order to, to do the decision making that it has to make. And um, what we then sort of looked at was whether or not this generalizes to, to many other tasks as in uh, robotics, for example. So we looked at a set of continuous control tasks and a set of visual control tasks. And in both of them, uh, we see this, um, this phenomenon appear. So the lottery ticket 
um, is essentially not only uh, yielding a sparse uh, neural network that's trainable, but it's also yielding um, an interpretable inductive bias in the form of the input layer mask. So what we do, do in the paper is we show that if you take this mask and you essentially overlay it on the environment, then dimensions which are really just task irrelevant are being pruned away, while other dimensions which are task relevant are preserved. And thereby the uh, pruning mask is essentially telling the agent what's important and what's not. So I wrote this question earlier. Let's see if it still makes sense. The question was if you have ideas on which phases of learning require more model capacity. It sounds like you re really need the most model capacity in the beginning. Is that is that right? Like in terms of early exploration of a novice agent versus like fine-tuning an agent that's nearly become expert? Well, we actually never really looked at uh, whether or not it's possible to uh, train at, uh, to, to prune at intermediate um, phases of, of training, right? So the lottery ticket procedure as is always trains up to some form of early stopping criterion mm. or up to some form of fixed iterations. And then you, you either set back to the initial weights or in a specific version of the lottery ticket procedure, you rewind the weights until a um, fixed period um, or a number of steps um, in, the, in the training process. Um, but whether or not you can sort of dynamically um, prune um, at intermediate steps of training, I'm not really certain about that. Um, it's actually a, a really interesting um, uh, question to ask. Yeah, especially because in reinforcement learning, oftentimes the, the learning dynamics may be fairly noisy, right? So you might um, never fully get convergence in that sense. So does this mean that uh, a lot of our neural network capacity is kind of wasted in general? Is that the default case? Yeah, that's also a good question. Um, it definitely means that uh, there might be more clever ways out there to initialize our neural networks um, that requires less parameters. And um, potentially, this also means that the remaining parameters could be used for something um, different, right? So uh, I'm not sure if there already exists work on, on multitask lottery tickets, right? Or continual learning lottery tickets. But this is um, for sure an interesting question going forward. Do you have any speculation on how far we could go with this? Like some models are getting really big now. Um, if, if pruning... Maybe maybe if the lottery ticket hypothesis can be taken to its ultimate conclusion and uh, pruning, you know, we can find ways to prune really well. Do you think there's a chance that we might distill these massive networks down into something really quite quite a lot smaller? So to me, as a researcher, the lottery ticket hypothesis or framework is um, much more of a hypothesis testing engine than necessarily a way forward in terms of how to obtain sparse neural networks. So oftentimes um, doing this iterative procedure where you train a neural network and then you prune it a little bit and then you train again and then you prune again a little bit oftentimes already gives you quite well-performing sparse neural networks. So what's more interesting to me about the lottery ticket hypothesis is um, what it can tell us about the learning dynamics of an agent, right? So um, as I was sort of alluding to, uh, Jonathan Frankel has a set of papers where he looks at um, uh, sort of the stability of the learning dynamics and um, the dependence on um, the, the order of the batches and the data set ordering. And uh, these types of work um, can sort of also inspire how we think about 
um, learning dynamics and reinforcement learning. So one, one thing that we study, for example, in the paper is um, whether or not training agents with um, explicit supervision, so in a behavioral cloning task, um, allows us to obtain more sparse networks. And that would sort of point to uh, the observation or to the point that um, reinforcement learning is inherently more complex and may require more parameters. So what do I mean by that? In behavior cloning, um, you would train an expert on a certain task and then have a student clone the behavior or try to imitate the behavior of um, the teacher. So this is uh, most often a supervised loss. There is no exploration, but instead the agent sort of has to simply predict what the teacher would do and then execute that behavior as well. But in the reinforcement learning setting, we have sort of the additional problem of exploration. We have the additional problem of um, having to solve um, uh, the problem of learning with a non-stationary data distribution in the sense that the agent observes different parts of the environment at different parts of training. And we have the problem of having a credit assignment signal in form of the reward, which is oftentimes noisy and sparse. So what we show in, in our experiments is that um, this setting actually really indeed requires more parameters. So if you take um, the same network architecture and you train it with supervised uh, behavior cloning and then do the iterative magnitude pruning procedure in that setting and then compare this to uh, what sparsity performance results you would get for the reinforcement learning case, we see that reinforcement learning starts to degrade a lot earlier in terms of sparsity than um, supervised behavior cloning. So one thing just empirically that this says is that if you want to obtain sparse reinforcement learning agents or control agents, um, you should not use uh, the reinforcement learning um, problem formulation where you have an agent which wanders around its environment, perceives, and then learns from a reinforcement signal, but instead uh, use some form of um, student-teacher distillation because that allows you to go sparser. Um, on the other end, it also tells us that um, the reinforcement learning problem essentially can benefit from having more parameters, which is something that until fairly recently was not necessarily clear, I feel. I guess it makes me wonder if the agent started by imitating a mediocre agent and then and reinforcement learning was then used to to fine-tune this uh, agent to expert, would it need a lot of capa model capacity for that, or would that be kind of, it could kind of just, it wouldn't need as much elbow room because it already had some of the core behaviors? That's that's interesting. We, we didn't test that setting. Um, another setting brought forward the classical offline RL setting where you have a data set and uh, don't have an agent exploring the environment necessarily, but you just have transitions in an experience replay buffer, for example, and you have to, to learn from that. Um, in that case, you also have suboptimal demonstrations and um, you could run the same procedure and try to, to figure out whether or not um, essentially uh, learning from a static uh, non-distribution uh, shift exposed uh, data set also requires uh, less parameters. But on the other hand, um, it's fairly hard to compare because uh, usually these agents might not necessarily train up to the performance that the full reinforcement learning agent or the behavioral cloning agent um, trains up to. 
so it's hard to make the sparsity performance comparisons. Um, the setting that you were talking about, um, the one sort of where you have one initial learning phase in which um, you do um, sort of behavior cloning and then start to fine tune using reinforcement learning is um, actually um, one that we didn't investigate yet. I mean, I imagine a huge amount of effort goes into defining and running these experiments and analyzing the results. And it's so easy for people to come after the fact and be like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And there's always a million things you could have done. Um, no, I'm, I'm really thankful. Like, uh, okay. these are great ideas. And um, you're right. Like, the, this iterative procedure requires you to train networks at different sparsity levels sequentially 20 times. And that's um, not cheap. But uh, I think good ideas are also not cheap. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's move to your next paper that is Semantic RL with Action Grammars, Data Efficient Learning of Hierarchical Task Abstractions. Yeah, so this is a paper together with my former supervisor at Imperial College, um, Aldo Faiza. And um, this paper uh, has sort of a bit of a longer history in uh, Aldo's lab. And it actually originates from um, something that's not related necessarily to reinforcement learning at first sight, namely... Um, the evolution of uh, tool use algorithms back in the days. And um, Aldo, my, Pfizer, uh, my supervisor, um, is very much into the concept of so-called action grammars. So the idea behind um, action grammars is that many of our behaviors sort of have um, repeating sequences, which are structured um, using a form of high-level syntax, um, that helps us solve tasks. So one classic example might be um, opening a door and closing it. Um, there are sort of primitives in there, like grabbing um, for, for the, the knob, which um, are used multiple times in, in solving that task. And you can think of them as being some form of uh, production rule or um, yeah, grammar-like structure. Um, that is iterated or used multiple times and which can be uh, reused several times. And um, in, in sort of a, um, an old paper, he and colleagues looked at how such grammatical structures um, might capture um, the complexity of tool use over time. And what they show is that um, these grammars um, sort of became more and more complex um, uh, with evolution unfolding, and that humans um, develop more and more sophisticated tool use, um, sort of grammatical algorithms, I, I would say. And in the paper um, that you were referring to, um, we're sort of looking at whether or not one can also use um, such grammar structures as um, building blocks for hierarchical reinforcement learning. So traditionally in, in reinforcement learning, um, we, we work sort of with single step um, actions and agents have to optimize some form of aggregated reward metric um, based on executing uh, actions one step at a time. But in hierarchical reinforcement learning, um, the idea is that uh, it might be more data efficient to essentially learn hierarchical policies which execute certain um, sub-policies over multiple time steps. And one very classical example of, um, of this hierarchical reinforcement learning um, framework are, are options. And um, in options, you, you define essentially sub-policies for an initiation set of states. And these sub-policies are then basically executed over multiple time steps. 
until you have a termination criterion and the termination criterion says no now you're you're stopping um, to execute that sub policy and you return um, control back to a higher level policy and that higher level policy then executes the next sub policy and one key sort of question um, in hierarchical reinforcement learning is how can you come up with uh, uh, good sub policies and in the original paper um, by Sutton et al um, the the way how they came up with um, uh, with the first set of options was to manually construct them and nowadays um, a lot of uh, people are interested in sort of doing automated um, construction of such options which are essentially um, simply temporally extended actions and in, in in our paper we look at whether or not one can use um, this notion of grammar and more specifically action grammars to define a set of temporally extended actions we're not lo looking at options but we're more looking at macro actions which are simply sort of deterministic sequences of primitive actions so as you said deterministic sequences are they um are these actions executed in the compound actions are they executed in, in a in an open loop way like once you begin you just roll out those actions without regards to what's happening in the environment until until that sequence is done and is that different than options in that yeah. sense so yeah in options um you you have something called a termination criterion or function which in modern setups um oftentimes is also state dependent and um if the higher level controller says execute option one then essentially the sub policy of option one is executed until the termination criterion says no don't execute anymore while in our setting uh, where we use these more simple i guess macro actions you're always um determinist uh, deterministically executing the full sequence of actions yeah i love the connection here with language and action and i i don't, I don't actually know anything about the neuroscience in this area but i can imagine uh, maybe that our you know the grammar of our our tool use uh, carried over carries over to the grammar of, of, of language or our ability to use language and now we're finding in in AI that transformers are are going through and solving all the different uh, modalities and so so maybe there is something fundamental in uh, in those grammars to to all the things that we can do which is I, I think kind of uh, a beautiful insight and this paper reminds me a little bit of uh, just just in the in the sense of framing RL as an NLP problem reminds me a bit of decision transformer, uh, and I guess there's there's more work uh, happening in that direction in using these NLP tools um, on RL tasks. Do you see that as a, a growing a growing trend? Yeah. So yeah, like you said, right now it seems like transformers are are taking over many many subfields, and um, at least for offline RL. Um, it seems like they're also very efficient in modeling sequences and their generalization power allows you to um, uh, create or sample trajectories which are even going beyond or um, well, what the agent has seen right in the offline data set. Um, so, so back then when we worked on that paper, um, there were no transformers yet. And oftentimes I also wonder um, how data efficient that ultimately is that goal right because transformers at least in computer vision require quite a lot of um, data to really outperform the inductive biases that you get from mm. um, from a convolution operator for example and the same sort of applies here where um, 
the grammars which we use or which we infer, um, they, they do not require a lot of data. So we use um, grammar compression techniques from um, context-free grammars to construct our macro engines. And um, what we do in that setting is we treat a sequence of actions as sort of a sample from a language. Okay, so it's a, a sentence essentially. And then we define primitive actions as being um, essentially our vocabulary. Okay, and then we can construct uh, rules which generate these actions in a hierarchical fashion using these grammar compression algorithms, and they, they run super fast, right? So oftentimes they, they might be a little bit heuristic, but um, they, um, they create the grammar, which is then ultimately um, the set of macro actions in, in no time. While training and transformer offline um, requires a lot more compute, a lot more data, and um, does not come with this inductive bias of a context-free grammar that we're using. And furthermore, what we're showing is in our paper that um, you can infer these grammars online as the agent is learning. So we have a set of experiments which is more um, closely related to um, offline RL or imitation learning, where you just infer essentially a grammar based on an optimal policy and then use that grammar to train an RL agent from scratch. Um, but you can also train an RL agent from scratch and then essentially infer macro actions as you go and as the agent gets better in the environment. So it's essentially bootstrapping um, its own learning progress by compressing it into a grammar. Cool, yeah, I guess I, I like to think that classical algorithms are always preferred when they when they do apply because they're super fast and efficient and, and exact, right? Yeah, but it's also sort of, I guess, a trend of our time that... Um, ultimately, we as computer scientists are interested in general purpose solutions, right? And yeah, it, it oftentimes feels like um, we first come up with the more specialized solutions, which leverage inductive biases. And then once we have a clue about how things work, we, we broaden and we generalize and um, we let the system discover all these inductive biases and even more on its own. So can you say more about how this uh, how this grammar evolves? Um, like, I guess, as the agent is training, does the set of compound actions or however you phrase them, does that set grow and change through the process? Yeah. So the, these grammar algorithms, they also come with their own set of um, hyperparameters, right? And you, depending on these hyperparameters, you get more or less um, uh, macro actions. And this is actually something you, you need to control. Oftentimes, it makes more sense to be a bit more conservative early on. So that means extracting less um, macro actions initially, and then sort of as the agent gets better, extract more of them. Um, but this is also um, sort of problem dependent. And um, the way how they evolve over time is essentially that um, initially um, there might be um, more um, macro actions with fewer primitive actions, so short macro actions, so not long sub policies. And towards the end, as the agent learns to 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 solve the task, the macro actions can be robustly longer, right? So um, yeah, longer subsequences of actions. And does it does it discard any earlier uh, macros that it found that may not be applicable anymore, or is it kind of an accumulating set? Yeah. So. Um, some of them can be discarded. Um, that's that, that happens naturally, but oftentimes um, you have a um, 
a, a parse tree. Like in a context-free grammar, um, you, you essentially compose different protection rules into each other, right? So um, you have a hierarchy of um, macros and they are uh, rules that sort of compose of smaller subrules, right? So smaller subrules make up larger, longer rules. So this paper was uh, in 2019. Uh, are you are you or your colleagues planning to pursue this direction more, or has has more happened in this in this area since? I moved on, so I moved to Berlin after my time at Imperial. But um, in the years afterwards, um, other students worked on on the project, and um, one sub project in which I was partially involved was um, trying to scale our experiments to um, the setting of Atari, for example. And we looked sort of at um, the low data regime, so only a few uh, learning transitions, not the full 200 million frames. And um, back then we could also see that um, enhancing algorithms like DQN um, can actually, uh, with such uh, macro actions, can actually um, also outperform like doodling DQN baselines. And uh, back then, uh, my co-author, Petros Christodoulou, he had a really um, smart idea for how to uh, construct macro actions in experience replay buffers. So usually in sort of classical DQN, uh, our experience replay buffer consists of one step um, transitions, right? So an agent uh, finds itself in a specific state, takes an action, receives uh, from the environment a reward, as well as its state transition. And so this tuple is stored in the replay buffer, and then we sample um, batches of these transitions to construct gradient estimates. Um, but in our setting, where we're interested in temporally extended actions, our replay buffer needs to sort of account for uh, these macro actions. And one simple way to do so would be to say, okay, we have an action, then you execute the macro action, and we store that macro action as sort of a number in our replay buffer in encoding that action, and then we store the final state that was observed as well as sort of um, the uh, sort of return that was accumulated during the time um, we executed the macro action. But this would sort of only give us macro actions in our replay buffer whenever we execute actually a specific macro action. But what uh, Petros came up with is that you can also use um, the rest of the replay buffer, which might consist of primitive actions, so one-step actions, to construct macro actions based on those, right? So you can chain together different one-step transitions into transitions which are um, essentially macro actions, but they were not executed as macro actions, but just as sequences of primitive actions. And this is approach um, he called um, hindsight action replay, where we're essentially um, composing different transitions which executed a um, macro into uh, transitions which then can be used to actually train our value estimates for a specific macro action. Yeah. That's really cool, yeah. very innovative. Yeah, and you could also, like we didn't explore this, um, but you could also imagine that um, you construct these macro actions using different discounts, right? So you have all the primitive actions um, available and you could think of constructing different macro transitions using different discounts and thereby learning essentially at different time scales, right? Uh, we didn't do that, um, but this is sort of something you could explore. Cool, okay. So let's move on to MLE infrastructure. Uh, I see on your homepage that you maintain this, this uh, package. Um, can you say more about uh, MLE infrastructure and uh, Maybe can you situate it a bit by comparing it to, to other frameworks in, in that space? Sure. 
So um, the AMLE infrastructure is uh, something that's actually not uh, RL specific, but more um, a set of tools that I've built throughout the last years when writing papers um, that allow me to execute and to train um, neural networks in a distributed fashion, right? So oftentimes um, I'm interested in exploring sort of uh, the sensitivity of some architecture across a range of hyperparameters. And uh, I want to do so for, for multiple random seeds. And um, I don't want to write each time sort of a, a submission script that um, executes this on a cluster. And um, I don't want to have to manually um, SCP the results onto my local machine. But instead, I, I wrote essentially this set of tools, the MLE infrastructure, which um, comes with the set of sub packages that help me organize and orchestrate these experiments. So for example, in there, um, I have a tool called MLE Hyperopt, which um, allows me to very easily and lightweight engineer grid searches or random searches or Bayesian optimization um, pipelines. And um, this all integrates and works very well on uh, grid engine clusters, Slurm clusters, and with um, Google Cloud Platform virtual machines. And um, the, the whole motivation behind it is mainly that um, places like Google, um, OpenAI, they have full-time research engineers, right? They have the money to, to, to pay um, for setting up a good and efficient infrastructure for testing hypotheses and for doing science. But oftentimes in, um, in the world or in the academic world, if you're not at a place like Mila or Stanford or Berkeley, um, these structures might not necessarily be uh, in place. And um, what I aim to provide with the Emily infrastructure is um, a set of simple tools that can be um, used by, by anyone like me who doesn't find themselves in a PhD program at these uh, institutions. And um, it compares to um, packages like uh, Raytune or um, Sacred from Inlia, which um, provides similar sort of services. Um, but the main selling point behind the MLE infrastructure is that it's submodules like the hyperparameter search or the utilities I use to log or the utilities I use to schedule jobs. They are um, sort of modular and independent. So that means you don't have to buy into the full ecosystem um, installing a SQL database or um, something like that, but you can sort of pick and choose what part of the uh, infrastructure you want to use. And um, I provide sort of a wrapper in the MLE toolbox, which chains all of them together to run sort of uh, standardized and protocoled uh, distributed ML experiments, but you can also just um, use parts of it. Cool. Are other people using it too, or is it is it mostly uh, for yourself? Yeah, no. So um, basically, I developed or I released most of this during the last two, two and a half months. And um, there are already like um, a couple of people uh, opening issues and starting to work on pull requests. And um, yeah, people in my lab are now starting to use it. And um, yeah, it's... Um, it's up and coming, let's put it that way, or at least that's how I like to think about it. <laughs> no, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to spend the next one and a half years finishing my PhD, working with it daily, and um, I have big plans. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I can I can see there's like a huge amount of plumbing behind uh, every chart and experiment that we see in these papers. There's a big gap between just being able to sketch out your code and then actually running that at scale and having it reproducible and all that. So 
uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'll probably check that out. Uh, like all of the papers we discussed today, except for the hierarchical reinforcement learning paper, they were also conducted using the toolbox, right? So you can imagine that training um, um, uh, these lottery ticket uh, settings um, also requires quite a lot of engineering in the sense that you have to train these networks sequentially 20 times and you want to keep track of all the checkpoints and all the progress and um, all of this is also orchestrated with the toolbox. So um, most of this sort of developed in um, uh, sort of linked with, with the projects that I've been working on. Great. We'll provide a link to this uh, repo in the, in the show notes. And that, that was a great testimonial. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to, uh, to MetaRL. So we talked about mm -hmm. uh, some of your work in MetaRL, but uh, in general, um, on this show, we've, we've talked about different, different definitions of MetaRL, and, and you touched on the definitions uh, early on. Um, I guess I have come to refer to two of these approaches um, as, as I, I call them like the Finn and the Faust uh, approaches. I guess the um, using RL to discover new RL algorithms is, is uh, more like Alexandra Faust's work. And then using pre-training um, on related tasks to let an RL agent quickly do fine-tuning, um, I think of as, as related to Chelsea Finn's work, like, like MAML. Um, how, can you say, say something about how you see the scope of meta-RL? Um, and do you, do you have your own way of thinking about the different, different types and definitions? How do you define meta-RL? So basically in the last five years, a bunch of different meta RL or meta learning algorithms more generally sort of popped out, uh, popped up. And I think the distinction that you've made is, is sort of adequate, but the way how I like to think about it is uh, more in terms of inductive biases. So something that is shared across all these formulations is that um, you have a task distribution and that task distribution has some form of overlap, right? And given that overlap, we're essentially interested in finding um, the best inductive biases that allow our agents or networks to adapt quickly to a new task that is part of that task distribution, or at least not too far away from that task distribution. And um, coming up with or using tools like model agnostic meta learning um, allows you to come up with one inductive bias in the form of an initialization shared across tasks like for example in a vision task this might be the inductive bias of having an edge detector at the on the early layers and this is most definitely shared across many tasks right but another inductive bias might be um, a learning algorithm and um, that learning algorithm might be very much tailored to the task distribution that you're looking at right so that learning algorithm might completely abstract away certain details of the environment or um, the transitions that the agent makes and it might focus on on others so um, in in my mind um, these are maybe two two sides um, of the same coin um, but you can also um, think of many other types of uh, inductive biases that you that you might come up with, right? So, for example, prototypal neural networks are um, a different approach to meta-learning. Or you might even think of um, the lottery ticket procedure, like this iterative magnitude pruning procedure that I spoke about, as some form of inductive bias discovery. And um, nowadays, many people, like, for example, Louis Kirsch, um, have been working on discovering new learning algorithms. And um, 
I think that's a really promising direction to take, um, but it's not necessarily um, trivial. <laughs> Can you uh, talk about any other advances in, in meta RL uh, lately that you find find interesting? What's going on in that field that, uh, that you find exciting? So one set of algorithms um, that I'm very excited about, especially in the context of um, reinforcement learning, is um, the work on uh, meta gradients. And someone who has pioneered this work um, is, for example, Tom Zahavi and a set of researchers at, um, at Google DeepMind. And the idea there is that in uh, reinforcement learning, um, we oftentimes have hyperparameters, like we spoke about the discount parameter or um, um, other parameters like um, uh, the amount of important sampling correction that you might want to do in um, um, in algorithms like Impala. And um, these are usually set to static values, right? So oftentimes you as a designer have to choose them a priori and then they, they might not change. Or you might have a um, exploration uh, parameter like an epsilon and an epsilon greedy schedule, which um, changes slowly over time and linearly decays. But it would be really cool to have a system that automatically tunes these algorithms in an end-to-end -end fashion. And what recently sort of has been uh, popping up is uh, that you can use sort of the same um, higher order gradients as you would use them in uh, MAML um, to also optimize these parameters. And especially in the context of uh, reinforcement learning where um, there is non-stationarity, this seems to be um, very effective. And um, you can not only optimize online hyperparameters like the discount factor, but you can also offline try to optimize or discover the entire RL objective. And if you think about it, oftentimes in reinforcement learning, um, the objective functions that we use are fairly um, historic in some sense. Like the uh, mean squared Bellman error is um, something that um, came out of approximate uh, dynamic programming, right? And uh, trying to, um, to to minimize some Bellman error, right? But an agent might actually learn better initially using a completely different objective, which emphasizes other things or discounts differently. And um, in this metagradient work, there has been a lot of follow-up work trying to show that you can even sort of parameterize entire objective functions using black box neural networks and then optimize these offline on a set of tasks um, that yields a network or objective function that then allows um, the agent to learn more effectively um, uh, from scratch essentially. So I think all of these approaches which try to make more and more of the reinforcement learning pipeline um, be end-to-end -end discoverable and tunable um, is really promising. Where do you think this is going long term? And like, do you see a holy grail in terms of meta RL? Like, what 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 kind of meta RL achievements would make you think like we've really arrived at powerful uh, meta learning for RL? If we get there, what what would be the effects on on the rest of of AI? Do you think about that stuff? Ultimately, the the vision from Jürgen Schmidhuber in the sense that um, we might aim for. Uh, systems which self-referentially refine themselves in a hierarchical loop 
is one that's that's very appealing, right? So right now we're mainly talking about systems where we stack one layer on top of the other, right? So we have um, higher order gradients, which um, optimize certain uh, parameters in our system, but we're never thinking about going one step further in, in the hierarchy. And um, there are many reasons for that. Um, related to sort of the, the variance of the gradients, um, computational efficiency, and uh, other um, factors. But I think long-term, um, I would be interested in having systems which um, go go beyond that, right? So not only try to meta-learn a certain set of um, primitives or um, ingredients, but um, sort of render more and more um, uh, exposed to such meta gradients or meta learning more generally. So is this the fuse of what people talk about when they talk about super intelligence explosion and and automatically improving AI? When it gets down to it, is this is this really the path to the to those things? <sighs> this is a speculative question, and I'm I'm not sure if I'm senior enough to to actually give you um, a good answer to that. Um, I can say that it algorithmically. Um, excites me and um, that I feel like it's it's the way to go but I can't give you like a, a good future prediction or anything like that I think we're probably at the same time closer and uh, further away from from these um, utopian or dystopian um, endeavors <laughs> cool okay so let's move on to economics and RL now I see you did it your undergrad in economics and you mentioned that in your ML Street Talk podcast interview, which I'll link to as well in, in the show notes. But you have this background in economics, and I think that's not too common for someone working in RL. Um, and I find that super interesting. So so does economics uh, influence your your view, uh, your approach at all to uh, to your machine learning work? So uh, actually, um, much of the formalism um, of RL is, is fairly present in economics. So many um, macroeconomists use um, Markov decision processes to, to model household behavior. And oftentimes um, an agent in economics is um, um, also, um, yeah, um, learning, no, no, not necessarily learning, but um, interacting and making decisions like savings and investments. Um, and recently um, people from Salesforce also tried to um, to sort of reframe many of uh, the fundamental economics problems like taxation um, and unemployment decisions into the world of reinforcement learning. Um, to me, um, actually, um, I, I decided to move out of economics because I felt um, like the level of description was not necessarily um, the most informative. So oftentimes in economics, um, we're dealing with highly aggregated measures, right? So inflation is an estimate based on a basket of goods and uh, unemployment rate is always estimated over many um, individuals and um, the modeling has to work on that aggregated level um, since otherwise um, it would be hard to reframe or to actually capture all the heterogeneity in the population. And I feel like um, in reinforcement learning, we don't necessarily need to um, go that way, right? So a lot of very exciting work in the field of multi-agent reinforcement learning um, by Jakob Förster, for example, um, can account for heterogeneity across agents. And I think there's uh, a lot of potential in, in that, uh, in the sense that AI may also inform modern economics in terms of policymaking and um, 
increasing the well-being of all of us, right? That's that's the ultimate goal, I would claim. <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned that uh, Salesforce paper. I think that was the AI Economist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so is is what you're saying that you you would consider looping back to to economics, or or is that more a flight of fancy? Yeah. So I think right now we're seeing that. Um, like the, the recent breakthroughs by, by DeepMind in um, mathematics, chemistry, um, protein folding, it, it seems like there's no, no discipline where there's no room for machine learning to improve certain things, right? Um, I'm not saying machine learning is going to um, substitute every field out there, um, but I think it's going to help um, scientists test new novel um, hypotheses. And this ultimately, I think seems like the hard sciences are more tractable at this point right like it's not like we're getting to the point of doing psychohistory like asimov's predicting mm -hmm. people's behavior over long time spans or something it seems like things like chemistry and physics and mathematics are very uh very neatly defined and so our algorithms can can attack them but but maybe things like sociology psychology uh, economics are are still very very squishy and uh, how, how could we possibly optimize those things with these these kind of tools that need everything to be so well defined that's a good point but at least in economics there are certain projects which for example try to to measure inflation in a um, more online fashion right um, and not only quarterly but sort of have um, an index that um, is online updated using machine learning essentially so um, i'm not sure if we're going to have uh, an economics transformer in the next two months. Um, but I feel like as we get more comfortable um, with these techniques and we can see more parallels across disciplines as well, um, I think there may be many opportunities to, to support um, economics. And yeah, there are also a bunch of people working on this right now. And, yeah. I mean, why is it so squishy? It's because we don't have sensors everywhere we don't really know what's happening in in a high resolution and that might actually change with these uh digital currencies these central bank digital currencies if you know if governments could could actually measure all the transactions and all the which is in one sense totally dystopian mm -hmm. but in another sense it would actually allow for optimizing um a lot of things that we wouldn't really think about as being possible to optimize right now yeah and it's obviously fairly apparent that we need a lot more work on the ethics side to really make sure what we want to expose to that blind or somewhat blind optimization and what mm -hmm. we don't want to expose, right? Like, especially with digital currencies and sort of a move towards um, decentralized or centralized ones. Um, it's a big question what we want to keep anonymous and whatnot and uh, what types of analyses we can do in what cases, right? So, um, yeah, I think of these things should be taken with a grain of salt <laughs> for sure so causality seems really important in economics and it has a long history in economics mm -hmm. and i guess rl is coming around to to causality do you mm -hmm. do you spend much time thinking about um causal angle and um you have any comments about that i i used to spend a lot more time thinking about causality when i still was in economics um but back then or economics in uh, or causality in economics is a lot about mm, estimating causal effects of some form of policy intervention, right? So you might think of um, how do um, employment decisions of workers change if a certain policy is implemented? And you want to estimate some form of impact on 
um, on uh, sort of employment based on, on that policy being enacted. And in economics, usually you refer to so-called um, pseudo-natural experiments. So you have a data set where there was some form of policy um, intervention, and then you try to estimate based on the data set um, what the effect might be. And then there's a lot of statistical debate whether or not um, you should um, account for certain unobserved variables, like for example that the workers might have selected themselves to be more or less affected by um, the policy intervention, and then the, the whole game starts um, about sort of what are the right uh, standard errors, what are the right um, uh, significance levels um, to assess these uh, effects and these effects might be time varying and then the big question is also how does a quasi-natural experiment that happened 50 years ago affect uh, what's happening right now and to tie this back to reinforcement learning in reinforcement learning we have the huge benefit that oftentimes we have access to simulators and oftentimes um, it's a lot easier for an agent to to test certain hypotheses in an exploration based way using sort of um, insights from causality. So in many ways, um, the setting in which we find ourselves uh, simulating agents is a lot easier um, or uh, tractable is the wrong word, but um, allows for more experimentation than the one in economics. It's a lot harder to actually um, uh, play around or uh, enact interventions in economics than it is for a reinforcement learning agent to essentially be exposed to an intervention. Do you see uh, do you see economics being less dismal going forward? Do you see any approach to that, to getting closer to the RL paradigm where there are simulators that are meaningful or, mm. um, or we can draw conclusions more clearly? Like how, how is that progressing on the economic side? Do you think there's mm. there's hope there? Will it always be this dismal? Yeah. So I guess um, companies like, like Google already run billions of experiments um, every day, every month, in the sense that it's very easy to change um, something in, in the UI and do some form of A-B testing and observe the behavior of, of users. And I think more and more governments are also moving into that direction and uh, trying to test certain uh, nudging techniques, for example, and try to assess effects of small changes on a subset of individuals and um, yeah i'm not sure whether or not one can really test large interventions um, and whether or not one actually needs a simulator um, to do so um, but yeah this is sort of the the general problem that one can face when when doing simulation right that um, the simulation might uh, be or it's always an abstraction or um, a downscaled abstraction of what's happening in the real world and then you have to ask yourself how much complexity do you actually need to to grasp the underlying real phenomenon while not increasing the amount of simulation time so drastically that things become too slow to actually gain any insight i mean it, it's always struck me that it seems if we ever want to get to scientific government governance uh, like we're our well, most of what we do in in fiscal policy and and how governance is done is is just legacy stuff, uh, traditional things. And uh, if we ever ever get to want to get to the point where we have a more optimized society, it seems like we want to be testing more radical ideas uh, as quickly as we can. And what would that look like if we had 
if we had a government that was part of its mission was to get insight on how to do good governance. And I don't think that's really a, a really a priority these days. I agree, but I also feel like a point that Jonathan Frankel oftentimes makes is that our leaders have to have the tools, right? They, they need to be educated in what we're doing, essentially, right? Which is machine learning or doing research, at least to a certain degree. Because if you don't know necessarily what's possible and um, what's feasible right now, um, it's really hard to come up with such government's design that might lead us into the future. So I think a big um, initiative um, has to come about for educating our future leaders in being able to tackle these challenges of ethical decision-making and um, exploring um, diverse policies while not risking to discriminate or um, hurt, damage people in our society. Couldn't agree more. So we covered a lot of things, but on a high level, uh, are there other things that we didn't talk about today uh, happening in RL that, that are particularly interesting uh, for you, Robert? So I think I highlighted um, the work on, on metagradients, which, which I find deeply fascinating. Um, but one question that's sort of intriguing me right now is um, also related to the lottery ticket hypothesis. And that's the question why we actually need so many parameters in, in reinforcement learning to train. And I, I realized fairly recently that um, if you take a step back and you don't use sort of the classical RL problem formulation and classical RL um, algorithms, but you resort back to evolutionary strategies, which directly try to optimize some form of fitness or return score, it's actually possible to obtain policies which have orders of magnitudes fewer parameters and oftentimes in evolution strategies um, it's even better to have fewer parameters because that makes the search um, more efficient larger search spaces in uh, evolutionary optimization is oftentimes harder than in, in smaller parameter spaces so i'm really interested in sort of figuring out what the role of over-parameterization in reinforcement is for reinforcement learning is as compared to um, in, in supervised learning. And I feel like evolution strategies might provide um, a different angle um, to when parameterization actually is uh, harmful and when it's beneficial. Cool. So is that a uh, uh, part of your plan for moving forward in your, your research? And you want to see more exactly. about your, yeah, okay. Exactly. So my, my PhD is mainly focused on meta learning and sort of the relation to um, to evolution, but not only on a high level um, where you could think of meta learning being an evolutionary process, but also um, uh, relating to evolutionary strategies and how one could even try to meta learn evolutionary strategies, um, but also think of um, inductive biases that might be beneficial for doing evolution and yeah, the other way around. I think you've given me a new perspective on that phrase, inductive biases, because I, I never would have thought of learning algorithms as an inductive bias. I guess I wasn't thinking that generally. Uh, I think you're expanding our minds today. Robert, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really grateful. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, and uh, thanks for taking the time to share your time and your insight with us at TalkRL. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me.